Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi. Um uh fellow nerd Tiffany Pearsall is here also, and we're both really excited. I, I talked over your high, but um we're both really excited that Elliot Haspel is on um with us today. Um so Elliot, would you please tell folks about yourself and then we'll jump into this piece you wrote for Early Learning Nation. Uh, sure. Uh, happy to. So I'm a child care uh, policy nerd. Uh, I am an author of a book called Crawling Behind America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. I'm um, a commentator and writer and uh, on a lot of different uh, early childhood and child care issues. Uh, professionally, um, I've worked in early childhood policy organizations. I've worked in philanthropy doing early childhood work, and I currently serve as the director of climate and young children for a think tank called Capita, which is really focused on the future of child and family flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm the dad of uh, two young kids. So also, also very, important uh, to the conversation. Yeah, also important to the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, some listeners will remember that you were on a couple of years ago when crawling behind was kind of first out. Um, and if they want to find more about you, they can, they can search that. Um, but we're, we're going to, um, ask you to talk with us, Elliot, about this piece you wrote for Early Learning Nation earlier in the month um, called Elliot's Provocations, The Minimum Viable Child Care Fallacy. Um, so just to start, we're going to do our, our format where we have to have a quote first. And so this is from the very beginning of your piece. Um, and you wrote, I dislike the economic case for child care. I'm not talking about my take on the role of employers but the near constant way lawmakers and advocates of both parties rest their case for supporting childcare on its function as an economic driver. Instead, I think we need to reposition childcare as essential to family freedom and national prosperity, a driver of societal health and well-being. Uh, agreed. <laughs> that got us from the beginning when we when we were sharing this in our group chat. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm really just uncomfortable with the idea of putting economic pressure for our whole society on the shoulders of children younger than five years old, <laughs> five and younger. But, um, so would you, would you just speak to that a little bit? Like what was, what brought this, this article on for you and what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been thinking for a while about the fact that, like, the economic case for childcare has come to really dominate the way that we talk about it. I mean, it is in almost every single article you read about it, almost every single statement by an elected official or an advocate is um, how much we need childcare for the economy to function. And uh, I think there's a history to that we can get into, of, like, where that came from and James Heckman and, and yeah, please. what was happening let's before that. that. So let's talk about that in a minute. But um <laughs> You know, and what I say in the second paragraph is like, that's not wrong, right? Like it is an economic driver. However, mm-hmm. like there are consequences to making that your dominant rationale. And the main consequence is that if all you're trying to do is make sure that parents can work, uh, 
then you actually don't need a particularly good childcare system. You just need, as I call it, the minimum viable childcare system. Um, you know, it doesn't actually really matter what's going on inside those childcare centers. The quality doesn't really matter. Um, the affordability doesn't matter as much because, you know, it's okay. As long as it's kind of adequate, you know, it doesn't have to be enormously functional. It just needs to not be super terrible. Uh, and so, you know, if that's your logic, then like, why would you pay an early childhood educator $50,000? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all you got to do is make sure that like we are, you know, not completely letting the bottom fall out um, on the supply. And there are all sorts of other consequences of that. And so, so this piece was trying to push back a little bit and say, like, I think we may have let the the pendulum go too far in the direction um, of the economic case uh, to the exclusion of other arguments which actually lead to uh, high quality, sustainable, uh, you know, really good system that works for parents, that works for kids, that works for providers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're having a lot of this conversation in my community. I'm in Indiana um, right now. Because there is a tremendous childcare need, we've got a lot of employers around the table with us now, with with some of the nonprofit folks and some early early childhood folks from the community. And the conversation circles, and it says we need to get our people back to work, and our people can't go back to work until there's childcare. But there won't be childcare until our you know folks are paid more to do it. But then it also has to be high quality. But nobody really wants to define high quality. And we right. just keep going around and around. Um, and, and I understand the, the idea that when you're trying to advocate for something, you need to figure out which aspect of that something is going to connect for your audience that you're right. Just, so there are, you're right. It's not wrong to have this economic argument, but um, it's, I don't know. It's part of a cycle that just, or a circle that just keeps going and I'm not seeing an end in sight. Right. And, and it's, it, I think that's a great point, actually, that we don't see an end in sight, right? Because I sometimes say like, follow this to its conclusion. Like, is there a credible path if all you're doing is making the economic argument to a childcare system where we're putting in collectively several like hundred billion dollars a year versus like our child or our K-12 system, right? Which gets 700 plus billion dollars a year. Um, and you're without that, you're never going to be able to actually pay educators well, have the supply you need, right? Because at Brand the Peace, the issue now is okay, so childcare is stuck at 13, 14 dollar an hour median wage. The Amazons and Targets and Walmarts and Chipotle's of the world are up, you know, 17, 18, in some cases, $20 an hour. And so, um, you know, the the conclusion would then be, okay, all we have to do is get childcare to be slightly less terrible, right? So instead of making $29,000 a year, now you can make $34,000 a year. Great, we did it, right? Like, we're good. Um, and if in the future that those wages go back down in the competing industries, right? And then like, presumably, what's cool childcare wages go back down also. And it's this kind of twisted, very, uh, it's this very capitalistic free market logic, which um, we've, I think, as childcare advocates and, and sort of rode that bandwagon um, to some, you know, success. But again, there are, there are costs to, to choosing to ride that bandwagon because we're not controlling where it goes all the way. Right. We got so excited that we were part of the conversation suddenly that we we forgot to um, uh, sort of contribute our own expertise to the conversation. I think sometimes as early childhood childhood folks, Tiffany, are you waiting to get in with something? I just want to make sure we. 
Oh, I'm just really enjoying this conversation. <laughs> At this point, I'm just listening and saying, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you mentioned a, a second ago, Elliot, um, talking about how we got here and talking about the Heckman equation. Um, so is this a good time? Do you feel like? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, that? quick quick history lesson, right? Yeah. Like, so after Nixon vetoes the Comprehensive Child Development Act in 1971, like childcare kind of goes into the wilderness, right? Like it is not a policy priority. No one's talking, it's uh, kind of getting little bits of subsidy here and there. Uh, but by 1994, you have, you know, reports coming out calling it like a silent crisis. You're like, it wasn't that silent, like, you know, 20 years earlier, but now it's a silent crisis. People uh -huh. just stop talking about it. Apparently figuring, well, women are entering the work, like mothers of young children are entering the workforce in droves. There's no childcare system there to meet them. Uh, but we're just not going to do anything about that and just sort of assume that the parents and mothers are going to figure it out. Right. Uh, was basically, I mean, like I, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, but not that. Not hyperbolic. a lot hyperbolic. <laughs> like it kind of was the. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so mid 90s, right? It's called silent crisis. It is barely getting any attention. Um, and then, yeah, by the 2000s, the Heckman equation comes along, and all of a sudden, this is my sort of reading back. I was not in the field at the time. Like, I think people were like, hey, this this works now instead of saying this is like a women's issue instead of saying it's a child development issue. Like we can say this is an economic issue because, mm -hmm. you know, by the late 90s, we had two thirds of all kids under the age of six of their, you know, all available parents are in the workforce. So, you know, it's pretty easy to make that argument. And so, yeah, I think you saw this huge sort of surge of of interest in that argument. It's also worth mentioning that that's the same era that you're talking about like no child left behind mm -hmm. like the accountability era and k-12 education everyone's very obsessed with like metrics and like <laughs> measurements and yes. roi and again like we can go too far in the other direction but um so it fit you know it very much fit in that in that conversation um and i don't know that again it was as critically examined about is this actually an argument that's going to get us where we need to go or is this just an argument that gets us in the room to what you were saying earlier yeah you know I, <laughs> um so there's capitalist concern with this there's also patriarchy <laughs> comes in here like the economic argument is maybe <laughs> going to be more appealing to the people who are actually in power um right but, like who are you speaking to when you yeah. have these conversations yeah yeah um not you and, and I, I wonder a lot too about um how suddenly a child enters kindergarten and like now it's a it's a community problem but up until that point it's like well you chose to have kids so yeah yeah well exactly that's a great point Tiffany and I mean I think that, this why is, does that change yeah yeah and this is something that uh you know, I, I link this article a lot because it's one of my favorite articles come out in the past few years. Bryce Covert had this article back in like 2020. I think it was the heart of the pandemic, maybe 21. Um, and she said it, it was titled school is and like parentheses, like whisper it like a form of child care. And it was like, <laughs> you know, basically it is this verboten thing that we talk about that actually school has a child care function. Mm -hmm. uh, it has always had a child care function as one of its reasons. And we don't like talking about it. Uh, I was a public school teacher and I can tell you public school teachers don't like talking about it. Absolutely. Um, and I inter interviewed like 
you know, Randy Reingarten and superintendents and they, uh, who's the head of the American Confederation of Teachers, they don't like that argument. Mm -hmm. They do not like it being pointed out that school is childcare because it feels devaluing. It feels like disrespectful. Like all the things where you're like, well, that's interesting. Let's unpack <laughs> that. Right? Yeah. Like, the way that we think about care. But, you know, if, if zero to five is early care and education, I, I've argued before, you could easily say elementary school is middle uh, childhood care and education, right? Middle high school is adolescent care and education. We just lop off the care part mm -hmm. of that. Um, but, you know, some of it is interesting. And this is sort of my point is that when you think about how much money flows into K-12, when you think about the sort of where it, it situates in the, the sort of American mind, all of the problems that our public education system has acknowledged, uh, it's interesting that you don't see that. Isn't the argument isn't we need public schools so that parents can work, mm -hmm. right? And and so why do we think that we need childcare so that parents can work is the winning argument for us. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, and I really saw that um, thinking specifically about like social media and and memes and quotes that got shared around when um, when people were trying to decide if schools were going to reopen during COVID and when they were going to reopen. And the economic argument did come in a little bit then for schools because parents needed to get to work. They couldn't be doing uh, Zoom school at home anymore. And, and I did see so many um, elementary school teachers being really offended by that. And a lot of that school is not childcare kind of meme uh, stuff coming out. And, and it was interesting to me. It's like, we're saying the quiet part out loud now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a whole article. I wrote an article with the New York Times back then about like, why are the, because the childcare programs all reopened or many reopened within. Or stayed months. open, yeah. Some of them never closed, right? Yeah. And so, and that was my other argument. Like, why, why is any brought up these old, uh, schisms, these old ways of thinking and just like, you know, shown a really harsh spotlight on them. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a great, I agree. Yeah. So, so um, going back to just, uh, I've got a lot of highlighting, but I'm still just in this first <laughs> opening paragraph <laughs> of this, but you end it by saying um, that, that we can re we should reposition it as a driver of societal health and well-being. Yeah. And that was a big part of your crawling behind book was that it should be a public good likes like like k through 12 but not operating like k through 12 yeah um so so will you talk a little bit about how how is it a driver of societal health and and how would that change the argument if we focused on that more yeah so right child care in addition to all of its its work supports right it does it provides this foundation for stability in the family, right? And so when you have reliable, good child, what, and then again, to your point about this being pluralistic, like I'm talking, when I say childcare, I mean of any kind in any setting, stay-at-home parents, you know, grandparents, family childcare, formal programs, whatever you want. Like if you have good, stable childcare that you feel comfortable with as a parent, it unlocks a lot of things, right? And, and it's affordable. It, it unlocks... Uh, your ability to continue to have the work and care situation that you want, right? So that if you want to be able to go and or that's where you get meaning from, and, you know, then you're able to do that. If, if you want to be able to work part-time, then you're able to do that. You know, if you want to, um, it, it reduces stress significantly, right? Like we know and there are very tragic stories out there and, you know, you can read 
parent saying like, I'm dropping my kid off at this place. I know it's not good. I know it's not the, where I want them to be. Um, and I have to feed my family. And so this is what I have to do. And, and like, and yes, and I worry about it all day, you know? And so that's, you know, it's an enormous amount of stress. We see it infecting uh, freedom of choice in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is like family's ability to, live in the community they want to live in and invest in you know their local community and their in their neighborhood and their faith community like is very much tied up in a lot of cases to questions of child care there was a um a small town in vermont that did like a, a study and this was like a three thousand person town and they found like you know there were a handful of families that were saying like we're leaving because there's no child care here and like that's tragic like that is you know six families and family generationally in a town of 3000 people is actually like a fairly significant number. Um, and so, and, and similarly, we think about families letting being able to have the number of kids they want to have, right? Like we know often cases at times like that discussion starts with, can we afford it? Is there any place they're going to be able to go to childcare, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, instead of what should be, which is like this conversation of like, is this something we want, right? Is this something that we, we would like to have? And, you know, we think would enrich our our life experience and the experience of life experience of our community. So this is what I mean when I say like those arguments have nothing to do with whether business productivity is going to improve as a result. There's nothing to do with whether we're going to see uh, the female labor force participation, you know, rise over time. Like if those are secondary benefits, that's not the primary purpose. It's about mm -hmm. having a society where everyone can or every family has the ability to flourish and to thrive and it's really hard to do that when you're under all of this stress and outside pressure that's actually restricting your your choices and and that was a long monologue without even mentioning <laughs> the words child development which is a whole nother you know right. piece of this piece of this puzzle yeah I was pausing for Tiff again because she did so much nodding back there. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. I, I mean, the economic argument is such the focus, but it's like, if you're really able to step back, we have a county here that has zero licensed childcare providers and zero illegal childcare providers, and they can't hire enough people to plow the roads. They just don't get plowed anymore because they can't have enough people in their community because everyone as soon as they start having families they have to leave yeah. and they can't draw any new people in just to have a community because there's nowhere for their children to spend meaningful time yeah and that's and like choice. economy that's aside like yeah. public works fall apart roads fall apart yeah everything falls apart yep but those people chose to have kids so it's up to yeah. them to deal with it right no effect on anyone else <laughs> god yeah yeah, yeah, we're going to get called names for this one. <laughs> Good. Bring it. Um, <laughs> um, oh, sorry. I, I got busy listening and forgot that I was supposed to also be um, be guiding the, the conversation. Um, you know, one of the things that you you referred to um, some stuff stuff from a scholar named Emma Dowling, who I'd never heard of before. So um but but you said you quoted her saying something that um uh care is valorized but not valued and how does that fit into this yeah right that was so such a great uh, turn of phrase i know 
that means that our child care system is subsidized on the back of our child's care workers. I mean, yeah. Right? On the back like, of child care, yeah. Exactly that. Yeah, on the back of child workers, workers and on, and we specifically should say on the back of some women, right? And mothers in particular, right? So yeah. um, she is making that case. You know, the fact is, if you think about all of the, and this is she actually, Emma Dowling, and I came across her in a book on elder care, mm-hmm. um, which is another place where a lot of this comes up, where they actually mirror a lot of child care issues. Um, but her point is that, right, in most societies, in American society, very much part of this, uh, there is an expectation that, um, that the care that is provided uh, often by women, uh, we think it's really important, right? Like we're like, oh, those, you know, moms are, are heroes and right, like the stay-at-home mom, like, but then if you ask, great, can we compensate them? Do you want to like, the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> um, there's some expectation because care has a component of love to it. It does not need to be uh, met with, with compensation, uh, that it's not labor in the same way. Um, often, you know, care, if care, the old line is that care work is coded as women's work and manufacturing work is coded as men's work, right? And mm-hmm. so, therefore, you see vastly different um, levels of investment in those things. So, yeah, that's where that is a component of this. And I think we um, we have this problem, which is that the market will never reward care. It will never reward care because of that issue of valorized, but not valued. And it will never reward care because, and then I quote um, a guy from the UK, Jim Jackson on this, that, uh, you know, it's not, care is not a productive uh, work in the way that the free market capitalist thinks about it. Like it takes a long time mm-hmm. to provide, as we know, child care programs have extremely low child to adult ratios. So, uh, you know, you, one person is caring for, you know, four or six children, right? Like, and so you're not going to see, it, it doesn't really code into capitalist logic in the right. same way, you know, as like, I am have a car factory and I want to, you know, get as much productivity out of it. That means that I want to have as few people as possible that I have to pay doing as much work as possible and producing as much product as possible so that I can maximize my profits. And when you try to layer that onto uh child care it falls apart um and so but you know we're making return on investment arguments yeah. and so it's interesting when we we're um sub- we're, we're uh appropriating economic words and economic logic to make yeah. this case um when it actually like our sector doesn't fit in in like a into a, a traditional economic model yeah, and, and can we talk about the patriarchy again? <laughs> <laughs> always happens. Always, okay. all the time. Great, thanks, thanks. Yeah. Um, so there's also this, yes, we've got this amazing, it's like the whole premise of It's a Wonderful Life, right? Heather likes that movie. I I've do. only seen it once or twice. Mm-hmm. That like, I'm the working man and I work so hard and I've forgotten my family and I don't, val- like, it's not good to work all the time. You got to care for your family. But then on the flip side, when it's women doing all this care work, and especially if you're working in somewhere like a childcare center or sometimes even in your home and you're putting in that same level of, I've got to work all the time to make this happen. I'm working, working, working. And, it, and then there's this juxtaposition, right? Of like, but it's not good. Like society says it's bad to work all the time, but you're supposed to work all the time because it's care work. So then it's like, no matter how you divide this, you're just feeling bad about yourself all the time. Yeah. 
like it's communicated that like this work isn't valued, but doing the work isn't valued. So what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I think even just within the field of early childhood, you know, early care and education, early childhood, whatever we're calling it, child care work. There's such a divide just among those of us doing it um, that also devalues care and and play because those are not seen as productive. They're they're less measurable. They're seen as soft things that any woman can do. And and so why would we pay more for that? So, you know, we're not necessarily doing ourselves any favors either with this economic argument. We're trying to we're trying to use it to improve things for, you know, ourselves as workers in the field, but we end up creating divides, I guess, is where I'll, I'll try to let that trail off. <laughs> we do. I mean, look at the way that we, I think the field has a very uncomfortable relationship with uh, stay-at-home parents and relative caregivers, mm-hmm. like friend, family, neighbor caregivers, right? Like I was um, at a, a taping of, of, um, no one's coming to save us the podcast from from limonada um the other weekend there was a colorado state representative who who argued and i never heard this argument before but i think she's spot on she says actually like child care deserts is the is an erroneous term i'm paraphrasing her she said it's licensed child care deserts but if you go to those child care deserts you know what there is there's ffn care there's family neighbor care like Mm -hmm. somebody's taking care of those kids and so, like, you know, we talk all about childcare deserts. We're actually just in making those folks invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was an interesting point because, yeah. yes, again, like, how do you measure, like, what is the return on investment of a grandmother taking care of her one-year-old grandson? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not creating economic value. No one is going necessarily, right? Like, in fact, you might be taking that grandmother out of the workforce. Maybe she's a Walmart reader. Now she's not anymore, right? Like, it's... again I don't want to say there's no room for this because it's a very it can be a useful argument when it is targeted and used strategically when is our only argument uh or our dominant argument like it Mm -hmm. really does when you start to peel back the layers you're like huh all sorts of unintended consequences yeah this is actually make it harder to fight for a system that that works well for everyone yeah so I think that's a good uh, segue to the next piece that I want to ask you about. In um, So you talk about how um, if we're going to get away from this minimum viable child care fallacy, we must do two things. The first is explicitly position child care among higher ideals than a mere work enabler, which I think we've kind of been, been uh, talking about for a while. And then you say the second is crafting policy proposals aligned with such a vision. Um, and I know you have thoughts about what that would look like (laughs) yeah I mean I think there are right like one thing we need to do when we think about those policy proposals is to be pluralistically inclusive what I mean by that is you know we like we need to think about childcare in all its dimensions stay-at-home parents need to be part of the conversation FFN needs to be part of the conversation school-age childcare needs to be part of the conversation and uh we've gotten to this point where I think it is fair to say like the lion's share of the policy attention goes to formal childcare programs and pre-K programs, right? Childcare centers um, and pre-K programs to because some Because we extent. can't just give money to anybody. It has to be measurably quality, you know, quality. Right. 
by which someone's is, standard. Exactly, which is really, and it is a challenge, it is a tension, right? Because like, we go, we can talk about, I don't know where you two sit on like the idea of qualifications and like credentials, degrees that we need after early childhood teachers. Mm-hmm. That's a, a very um, open debate. And then, you know, I, I often try to nuance it by saying like, you know, we're talking congregate care settings. I think it's probably fair to say you need a different level of training and skill set than like taking care of your own kid or, you know, right. again, grandma taking care of um, of their grandkid. Uh, but it, you're right, it does. The We have to decide what child care is. Like this is what I can come down to at some point because I don't think America is ever going to get to the point where um, we have an expectation that like everyone from age one on is like basically like in a childcare program, which there are, you know, places like Sweden, like that basically is the case. And like, I think that's just not the country that we are. So if it's going to be pluralistic, then the policy needs to be pluralistic and it's, it's not so much. And that's uh yeah. So I'll pause there. There are other things that that's one of the big ones I think is mm-hmm. number. Like if you can, if we even answer for the stay at home, stay home parent question, uh, it gets a lot easier to sell the rest of it because that's the number. I don't know about YouTube, but like that's the number one thing I get pushed back on, like by far in a way. The number one is like, what are we doing? And then, you know, and and I've talked to people like fairly conservative people, like because in my book I talked about like let's pay state and home parents, right? Which is actually an idea that has like progressive roots, yeah, um, and feminist roots. Uh, and a lot of and several of them were like, you know, I don't love the idea of you know, one-year-olds in formal childcare, but, like, since you've got something for, like, stay-at-home parents, like, I could live with it. So, I think that just opens more doors. Mm-hmm. And and there is an economic argument for that, too. Like, if we're given stay-at-home parents some of the money that's going around to solve this problem, that goes into the economy, right? It like, they, they have more money, or they can um, they can do things that contributes so that so it's it's a piece of the puzzle but it has to be I think critically processed sort of case by case almost which makes it really hard to use just that economic argument as a problem solver and that's like is the economic argument the one that's going to get us a foot in the door and that's why we're focusing on it so much I think that's why we started to focus on it. Yeah, like you're saying, like, I think that's where it, it came from. And, and it does, right? But it, it has, it's like, what do you do once you're in the door? Because <laughs> of yeah. the question. That, that to me is my, my like, yes, everyone acknowledges that our child care system is not functioning. It's broken. We have broken. <laughs> yep. But how, like, what is the next step on the journey to start untangling this mess that people can say yes to without feeling like, we're reading, we're like inventing the wheel overnight, you know, like what are the actionable steps to that future that centers can take, that family providers can take? Like, how do we get there? We all acknowledge this would be great. Wouldn't it be great? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But how? Yeah. All right. And how do you convince the, you know, lawmakers that actually like this is worth investing in? So this is not just a minimum wage job, you know, poverty level job, right? Like that actually makes sense to invest in, you know, early childhood educators as middle class, you know, salaries with benefits. Um, I think, 
you know, to put a really fine point on this, I, I think it's interesting to note that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the nation's largest lobbying organization, um, and which its sort of nonprofit foundation arm regularly puts out uh, reports about the child care crisis and how much it's costing businesses and states, right? Like, so they have sort of are the, I guess, epitome of the economic argument, right? <laughs> and they're also an organization that spent seven figures on ad campaigns and lobbying expenses against the Build Back Better Act, yeah. right? Which would have invested $400 billion in the US childcare system. Uh, so it, it is this thing where you're like, the economic argument gets you in the door, but then the, the next sentence is, and therefore we need to <laughs> a dedicated funding source that's going to probably include some taxes. Yeah. You suddenly like, where'd everyone go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it it's it's scary for me whenever I'm listening to politicians or or any kind of policy uh making conversation locally that you know, the obvious answer is more national investment, but also I don't want you in here telling me how to do it every day. Like I, so it's, it's, it's super scary. And I think that's also why some of us pull back out of the advocacy um, that we could be doing is that we're like, well, if I, if I continue to struggle on, like I'm struggling on, at least I can do it the way I want to. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, and that's another policy question, right? Like yeah. how do you design it such that, uh, you know, there is enough autonomy, you know, remaining in programs and, you know, you have some amount of, of, you know, floor of quality, but that you're not being super prescriptive. Yeah. That's a good yeah. Point. Yeah. Um, oh, I just lost what I was going to say. Oh, is this where we get to talk about how there should be national licensing regulations? Oh, Oh, I, do you want to talk about that, Elliot? Tiffany, I don't know. Did I say that? Have I, have I said that? No, I don't think you did. I think <laughs> Tiffany just wants to bring it up. Tiffany, what, I bring it up a lot. Yeah. I bring it up a lot because when you think about something like CPR, that every yeah. single provider and school teacher and like many forward-facing public employees have to take every year, there are these huge organizations like Red Cross, and every time you get your CPR recertification, you are recertified and you know that you know the basics. Yet, when you think about childcare, we wash tables differently in Washington than we do in Oregon. Yeah. And like how many of those nuances are holding back this bigger like, hey, you should fund us argument? Because then when you start looking at childcare, it's a total shit show of like, well, nobody knows what they're doing. And you don't yeah. have any, like talking about qualifications and backgrounds, like you can have 12 kids on your own in South Dakota, but you can't have a single one in Washington. And so like, there's so much disjointed, what would that mean to fund? Because like, as a field, we don't have any logical national standards in that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm of like two minds on that question. Uh, like on the one hand, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that actually like many states have regulations that are kind of ridiculous, right? Like whether it's, you know, the amount of, the inches of mulch cover you have to have, you know, or the can't um, use sand in Washington, but you can in California, right? So, like, yeah, <laughs> sure. Like, and then also, like, the fact, like, I'm very aware that anything that feels like a, a DC power grab, right? Like, even if it's not, is always yeah. going to be met with with significant resistance. So, I think if there were to be 
that then you'd be really thoughtful about like what is the like what are the must-haves right like what are the things that you um because i actually think some of the grand bargain could be and we're going to reduce some of this unnecessary regulation i mean i don't think any of us think that fixing regulation is going to fix child care like obviously like it's funding but i don't think i am sympathetic especially talking to people in the field you know that like it is it makes it unnecessarily difficult and you know and plenty of times i've heard and talked to people who've said like uh you know, I know someone who wanted to start a child care program, started the process and then said, uh, absolutely not. This is a hot mess. I'm out, you know? So yeah, it's a piece of the, it should be a piece of the conversation. I agree with you there. I think that there's so much that could be said about child care reform <laughs> yeah. because this comes back around to that minimum viable product mindset, not just for the whole field, but like for a center, what is the minimum viable product product that is a child care center? Mm-hmm. And it's like, there are universal health and safety standards that like shouldn't be a state decision. Yeah. You know, yeah. like like I said with the washing tables is always my example. In Washington, you have to rinse the soap off with water first before you can bleach. But like, how is that not universal? That should be yeah. universal. Uh-huh. And that should be the minimum standard. But then the next question is, what's the minimum efficiency? What's the minimum quality that providers have access to? And I think once those minimum viable standards are met, like it frees up all of this time and space and money to focus on quality. Because we're not thinking about like, well, in Tennessee, this bottom floor counted, but in North Carolina, it doesn't. Like there's no way out of this mess right now. Money yeah. doesn't fix it all the way, is I guess what I'm trying to say. No, it's, it is a, what it's a phrase, necessary, but not sufficient. It's a, it's a prerequisite to any, because on the flip side, we can fix regulation. All the regulations make them perfect tomorrow when we'd still be in a giant mess. But like, yeah, and actually that's something that states could be doing now while we're kind of at a lull of any kind of major federal action, right? Like that could be an interesting thing. Say sometimes ask me like, what? what could we be doing right now given the sort of divided government and that's one answer is like take a real hard look audit those regulations uh, you know form some multi-state collaboratives and and look at them you know and i think mm-hmm. um get around into politics quickly with about like the it's a it's a perfectly reasonable point we have to get our systems in place i think we don't had build back better past it still would have been a struggle because we wouldn't have had necessarily the regulatory implementations frameworks sort of in place that we um, that we need, as we saw with the difficulty many states had even getting their you know ARPA money and everything else out the door, right? Like you know data systems, another example, right? Like most places we don't even know in many states like how many childcare providers there are and where they are, and you know like it can be really difficult just to like sort of that basic nuts and bolts stuff. So yeah, I think that's. That definitely needs to be happening in parallel to the rest of it. <laughs> There's a lot of pieces in here. I, I'm i trying to decide if I have, maybe not. I was going to go down the qualifications road a little bit. <laughs> um, but I think that's a part of it too, because we assume that if we get everyone degreed who's doing the work, then naturally some more money will flow into yeah. the system somehow and full disclosure i'm a i'm an early childhood program chair at a community college so of course i want people yeah to get degrees but i've also 
worked in the field long enough to know that the degree doesn't guarantee quality or money that no. money follows <laughs> right no yeah i mean what, that, what happens is then you get into so much student loan debt that you will never be able to pay off in your entire lifetime in this yeah. year yep yeah no i mean i had so look, we gotta fix that too before talking to I worked in, in when I was working in, you know, some years back, we were working on early childhood um, degree programs. And I had an interesting conversation with the higher education authority that was like, we're not sure we can accredit these because it doesn't meet our gainful employment standards. Like basically like, well, we can't tell students to go major in this because they're going to make poverty wages. And so that like violates some regulation. And I was like, wow, that's a problem. Like if it's, I think it's what the, the second percentile, maybe the single lowest degree, mm -hmm. um, it, it may win the award. Um, yeah. So yeah. And I think my biggest thing on this has always been, we have to be able to decouple training from degrees, yeah. right? Like K-12 doesn't want to talk about this, but frankly has this issue as well. If you will ever dig into the research on, um, you know, the correlation between degrees and uh, teacher performance, particularly at the elementary school level, uh, is less than we would commonly think. Um, but professional development, like high quality training, absolutely has, you know, influence. So like, that's always my thing on this is like, you know, you want... You don't want the 17 year old with who is, you know, babysat a few times, like the big here. <laughs> Here's a classroom of, you know, eight two year olds. Good luck. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's the that's the problem. That's when we run about. Um, you also don't want to say the 17 year old, go get a bachelor's degree in early childhood education and come back and talk to us in four years, uh, necessarily. Think well, you're somewhere in the middle, right? Where you're like, we need you to have a path such that you know, you know, you understand child development, you understand classroom management, like you understand how to like run that classroom effectively um, of eight two-year-olds. And then like, you know, hopefully you'll have mentorship to right from veteran teachers and you'll have like career ladders, like all, all the things we would, we would want. Um, but I think sometimes we get so caught in the question of like degree or, you know, bachelor's associate, CDA, like what is it um, that we don't, start with the question of like what's the outcome we're going for mm -hmm. and then what leads us into this outcome and that's for the young teachers that's before talking about the veteran teachers right like the 50 and 60 plus year olds you know women who've been doing this work mm -hmm. um, and doing it damn well right uh, yeah. but who might not speak English and so like then we're going to say unless you get like you know unless you have a degree so it, it all it's very complicated and I think it doesn't lend itself well to talking points. It doesn't well lend itself well to um, to simple answers. And so right. therefore, uh, it and policy is driven by simple answers. It seems yeah. like, you know. <laughs> so, but again, like all of this comes down to, in my mind, because to go back to like the original thing, mm -hmm. if we're starting from a place of saying like, we want a high quality, stable, you know, childcare center, childcare system with all sorts of options for parents um, to be able to get the care that they want and need, then like, we're going to need a robust workforce that is not making $14 an hour and they're 40% of them aren't walking out the door every year, right? Like, and right. that's not going to happen just by nudging up from 14 to 15 to $16 an hour, right? Like, it's not going to happen unless we say, like, this is going to require um, permanent 
dedicated funding streams. And, and here's why like that we require that, right? Because we want to have healthy families and we want to have healthy kids and we want families to be able to like spend time, uh, you know, with each other and passing on their values and their stories and having, you know, church picnics mm -hmm. instead of like freaking the freak out because like their childcare program gave them one week's notice that they're closing, which is just the article yesterday, one in Iowa city that did this, right? Yes. Like, like it, it just, the the system we need is so far from the system that we have um but the economic argument actually is not a path to the system that we need it's mm -hmm. a path to a slightly less terrible system that we <laughs> yeah um uh so i i need to wrap up even though this is super fun and i can keep going keep listening yeah. um is there any are there any like last thoughts that you that you want to throw out before we wind up wind down here elliot I mean, I think the actually, like the practically speaking, right? Like some of this shift really is going to be people on the ground advocates starting to incorporate um, new language. And so um, I sort of suggest some different ways you might make that argument in the piece. Uh, you know, I think there are, we can, but I would just, I guess, encourage listeners, like think about making the act like return on investment, you know, parents need to work. This is going to help the economy or just like one arrow in your quiver and like make sure you've got other ones there too mm -hmm. because i think the language shift we've seen it right we've already like everyone talks about as a public good now or as increasingly we're hearing people argue for it to be a right i think that wasn't the case 10 years ago right um, so language sure. shifts when people start shifting the language to be a little bit simplistic mm -hmm. about it so that's why my last point is like this isn't purely theoretical like yeah. there are actually things that we can all do in our sort of day-to-day -day conversations yeah. And so if people want to find find more from you, um, the book, again, is Crawling Behind American America's Child Care Crisis and How to Solve It, I think, right? So, yeah. Yep. And fix it. And then this piece came from Early Learning Nation, which is a, uh, <laughs> is it online? Yes, Early Learning Nation's online. Yes, earlylearningnation.com. Yeah. I write a monthly column there. Um, yeah. And, Where else yeah. can they can they get you, though? Um, those are the easiest places. Um, if you want to talk to me, I'm, I'm on you know, Twitter X, whatever that thing is called yeah. now, um, at eHaspel. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, my email is eHaspel at gmail.com. I'm, I'm all, I'm easy to find. So okay. always happy to, um, to talk to folks and, you know, and thank you, thank you both. And thanks, you know, your listeners for, for all the work y'all are doing. So. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for, um, for being so persistent. <laughs> And and yeah, um, thank you for the work you do. Yeah, the work you're doing is really, um, I think, important, and um, I really appreciate it. I know Tiffany does too. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Beth. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for uh, listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd. We'll see you again next week. Bye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.